Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Good morning. Merry Christmas to you. Gosh, it's good to see you. Quick question, uh, show, show of hands. Um, You've ever spent a lot of money on something and thought, gosh, it just wasn't worth it. You ever had buyer's remorse? A couple of hands, a couple of honest people in the room, right? Uh, leads you to start reading the reviews, right? If you're ordering online, let's see what other people say about it. I usually start with the most unhappy to see if there's any traction there. You know, if it's one or two people out of 15,000, they're just, they're just having a bad day and, and who really cares? Um, they have, you know, they got to voice it somewhere. So if you were to Google uh, most expensive fill in the blank, you're going to find some amazing um, things. Uh, most thing, the most amazing thing you'll find is that people are willing to spend an enormous amount of money on some very strange things. Um, if you were to Google the most expensive painting, for example, you would find the one um, by Leonardo da Vinci, Savalde Mundi, I think is how you'd say it, I don't really know. It's a picture of Christ uh, that was thought to have been lost until 2005 when it was rediscovered. And, and they're not really sure that he, anyway, they auctioned it in, in 2017 for a smooth um, $450 million. That's serious money. And here's my point as we get lost in the numbers is what is something worth? What you're willing to pay for it. Um, that's what it's worth. That's what you'll hear. I also, uh, I Googled watches, most expensive watch, because I just like all the little things. I wear a Timex. It's not one of the most expensive watches. So I think you can get this beauty for about $35. But anyway, there's one out there that sold for, let me find it here. I can't pronounce it because it's a Swiss watchmaker with a French name, uh, $31 million. $31 million. That's a, you got to really know, want to know what time, day, year, where the moon is. And uh, you got to really want to know some stuff about it. But that's, there it is. They made a few of those cars. I found one, a Mercedes that was with the fly up doors, $140 million. Uh, baseball card, the most expensive ones, Mickey Mantle, $12 million. And if you don't have that kind of money, Pokemon card. There's some great ones out there. Most expensive, $320,000. And I wonder if those folks get it and go, you know, maybe it's not worth this. And, and you just have a little buyer's remorse. Now, here's the thing. Um, for Christians, the, the, the price that was paid for our salvation, um, the redemption, the cost to redeem us from this world, is very, very high. It cost Jesus his life. A perfect, sinless man, the divine man, God, man, gave his life for us. That means that we are intrinsically of great, great worth. And when we forget that is true of us or true of each other, then what happens is all types of neg negative things seep in. Bigotry and racism, and divisions. When we forget that there is a high value on us, not only as created beings, created in the image of God, which makes us highly valuable, but then the price for our redemption. Wow. 
So I want to, I want to, I know um, Dave prayed for us, but I want to pray knowing that you're here today with a week till Christmas, really hard time for many, many people, many people. I was talking to a, a friend in between the services and he said, this is a real hard time of the year for me. And he looked away and he had a hat in his hand and he tipped it up at me and tapped on it. It was his Vietnam tour which is a long time ago, which still makes Christmas really difficult for him. We're going to be together with family, and since none of us have a perfect family, got to get ready for that, right? Because we're around the people that know all of our buttons and know how to push them, and, and this is a great chance to you know show people that Christ is real in my life, and I forgot him when I walked into this party. <laughs> And I just, I know, I mean, there's great joys, there's great sorrows, there's year end, there's getting to the finish. Some of us are working through Christmas and Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. So I just want to pause, acknowledge all that. Acknowledge all of that. Loss that you have to endure through Christmas. People that were with you last year that aren't with you this year. It's hard. It can be really hard. So I just want to pause and, and just ask God to meet us here in the midst of that. Would you pray with me? Father God, we give you thanks in Jesus' name that there is peace available to us in you that transcends our understanding because the God of peace is the one who distributes it. Would you be here? Would you be here with each of us, all of us, for those that are carrying great burdens and sadness, would you still give them comfort and joy? For those who are longing the loss of a loved one, would you meet them and be present in their struggle? For those with ancient memories that still haunt and current memories, would you be with us, I pray. May we be different because we've chosen to be here to worship you in song, to worship you with our attention and affections fixed on you. Meet us here, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Today we've, um, we're continuing in our series, The Line, which is a kind of a theme that Jesus' arrival changed everything, which is a huge statement and claim to make, that Jesus actually changed everything. You know, the, one of the things we've highlighted is the, the line of demarcation between A.D. and B.C., the whole calendar. But he also, as I said last week, the, the line that he drew through human history goes through the human heart. And so uh, the baptismal is out because Charles was baptized uh, at our last hour. You will hear his story because yeah, uh, I just asked him to leave it with me. It's just absolutely a life that's changed. And so we're looking at that. And today's story is out of Luke chapter 2 toward the end. It's the story of Jesus being presented as a 40-day-old baby at the temple and the two people that he meets there, uh, Simeon and the prophetess uh, Anna. And we're going to read that story and just make some observations that are actually played out through the New Testament to realize what was before Jesus, particularly our identity, our worth, what it was before Jesus and what it becomes after Jesus. After we meet him, after we know him, it's pretty huge. But as we enter in, Mary and Joseph are bringing Jesus to the temple. That's what they were supposed to do. They're first-time parents. They want to get it all right. They're doing everything. They love God, and they want to honor him. 
There was a process of presenting the firstborn son to, uh, to God. There was a process of uh, a, a young mother would go through for clean, uh, um, purity, uh, an act of purity, where she would bring herself after having a baby. All, they're doing all of that. And so I pick up in verse 22, and this is what it says. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, that's all in the book of Leviticus for um, moms that have had a baby, Joseph and Mary took him, Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. That's their task. They want to present him to the Lord. As it was written in the law, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. That's from the day of the Exodus onward. All the firstborn are presented to the Lord. And if they're a Levite of the tribe of Levi, they become priest. And if they're not, they pay um, uh, five shekels. And uh, so they bring their little offering. And then it says in verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. So they're going to bring a, an offering to God and say, hey, thank you for this child. Now, they, they've had a, you know, an interesting pregnancy, and it's, it's a different deal. And they can bring a lamb which is kind of the preferable, but you, if, you don't, if you don't have enough money for a lamb, then you can bring doves, and if you don't have enough money for doves, then you can bring pigeons. And of course, pigeons are just trash birds, right? And God says, I just want you to bring whatever you can, all right, to just say, hey, thanks. That's what they're doing. The point of explaining all this is to show you that Mary and Joseph were extremely devout in their faith. They really, really loved the Lord, and they wanted... They knew that Jesus was worth it, and so they're bringing him to the Lord and saying, God, here he is. And then they meet Simeon, verse 25 and 6. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's the redemption of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was on him. In other words, God would talk to him and reveal things to him in a very unique way. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Wow, there it is. He's the first, first one. Now, Israel at that time, they were focused on a lot of things other than God. And here's one man living counterculturally. He's living against the culture. He is devout and he is focused on the Lord. And he's kind of an outlier. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. I don't know how long he's waited, but it, I think it's been a while. And then it says in verse 27, moved by the Spirit, so the Spirit of God was directing him, he came to the temple courts. It's a big area. You know, imagine a couple football fields together. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms, praising God. Now, I just want to stop there for a minute. I love babies. I am the guy that should be on the commercial. We can't help you from becoming your parents, but we can't help you with your insurance because I, I'm that, I should take that class, right? My kids tell me, Dad, you don't have to talk to everybody. Not everybody's interested in your name. You don't need to know their name. Dad, you don't, Dad, Dad. But when there's a baby, oh, well, that's different. You kind of, you see them, and I'm the guy that'll stop and go, oh, how old's your baby? Da, 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 da. I've never just grabbed one. Okay, Simeon took the baby. That's what it said. I've never just gone, great kid, let me see it. But you know, we've had shepherds at delivery, right? When Jesus was born, they bust in in the delivery room. Hey, you're having a baby. We were just out watching the sheep, and man, the angels showed up and sang this song in Latin, and nobody understood it. Thanks, Dave. And, uh, <laughs> and, 
I don't, it was such a strange birth, delivery, the whole thing. I guess she just kind of went with it. But Simeon's got the baby Jesus now. And this is part of what he says. The, the sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation. He's going to say a little more, but I need to stop there and focus on this phrase. You may release your servant in peace. I've met people that are old enough to say honestly and with conviction, I am ready to go home. I am ready to go home. So many people think that Simeon is old. I'm done. I've been waiting, and now I can see it. And that's 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 my first observation that the first people, other than the shepherds, that Jesus is presented to are the old. We live in a culture that idolizes the young, right? I'm about to cough. I'm trying to head it off. I'm back. We have a culture that idolizes the young, applauds the young. If you're old, we overlook you in our culture. Some cultures idolize the old and the wisdom they bring. Ours does not. Often tied to productivity, physical productivity. You can't do what you once did. You can't think as fast as you once did. And here, we'll see that both Simeon and Anna are old and they're worthy to meet Jesus. They're worthy to meet Jesus. So here's my first observation. Identity before Jesus, age is a big delineator. Identity after Jesus, useful no matter your age. Here's the truth. You never outgrow your usefulness for God and his mission and his kingdom. You never do. You never age out of being a disciple of Jesus. You never do. Here are some of the old. Because God loves to use the too old, right? They're too old, which means if God doesn't show up, um, it's not going to happen. God also likes to use the too young. We'll get to those in just a minute. But the too old. Here's some. Elizabeth and Zechariah, too old to have children, had John the Baptist. Abraham and Sarah, too old. I mean, 100 years old? Come on. Not only are you too old to be a parent, you shouldn't be a parent. I mean, that's what we would say today. You know, mom, how are you going to carry a baby? You can barely walk. All right? Um, Daniel, at the end of his life, too old to be still holding the line and standing up for what is right. Joseph, at the end of his life, too old to be the place and the person that would rescue Israel. Joshua was with Moses for 50 years, and then after Moses died, God says, hey, I need you to go in and take the promised land. Okay, 
That took another 40 years. At the end of that, Caleb said, hey, I'm 85. I'm fine. My eyesight's good. Can I have the hill you promised me back in the day? I'm going to fight for it. Mm. The Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos writing the book of Revelation in his 90s. So if you're here and you're over 65, which is still kind of a benchmark for retirement, you don't get to retire from Christianity. And if we as a church have made you feel less than, that's, that's on us because God doesn't see that. He's ready to um, have your worth not in your age and what you used to be able to do, but who you are as redeemed by Christ. Okay? And then let's talk about the too young. The too young. God loves to use the too young. So if you're under 25, maybe even under 30, and you think, I'm going to wait and I'm going to get ready to live for God when I'm a little older. Don't wait. Because every day you're walking away from him, it's going to be harder to walk back to him. Go ahead and make that call right now. He doesn't, he doesn't see the distinction. When Daniel was first exiled, he was a teenager standing for what is right with his friends. Esther, the young queen, the boy that brought the bread and fish to Andrew, who then brought it to Jesus when they're trying to feed 5,000 people. I don't think it was Andrew's idea. Kids do that. Hey, anybody got food? Hey, I got my little squishy yogurt thing and I got a couple Lunchables. Will this help? Perfect. We'll feed everybody with that. That's what he did. Uh, King David, he didn't start out as a warrior poet. He started out as a shepherd. And he said, I, I don't know what y'all's problem is, but this, this giant here, he's defaming God. I'll take him on. I've killed wild animals. He can't be any worse. King Josiah, eight years old, eight years old. I guess he's a preteen when he discovered the law, all dusted up in the temple. And he said, these are the instructions that God left us. Dust that thing off and let's have a revival. Let's get going. So my first observation in this little story is that age is not an identifier once we have been redeemed by Christ. Paul would tell Timothy, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, Timothy, but set an example for believers in life and faith and love and speech and purity. Set it for the believers. So it doesn't matter which end of the spectrum you're on. God has purpose and plans for all of us, all our days. Continuing, this is the rest of what Simeon says. I can go because I've seen the salvation. For my eyes have seen your salvation, in verse 30 which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. What you're doing, God, is for all people, the whole world. When there's, when there's racial tension, you might hear this phrase. I kind of like it. There's not a bunch of races. There's just one race, the human race. <laughs> right? I like that. Sounds good. It's just not so biblically accurate. In the Bible, there are two races. There's Jews and there's everybody else. Because God picked these people. And you know what he did when he sent Christ? He put the two together. And do you know how easy it was for them to mix? It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't easy at all. It wasn't easy. But Simeon goes, hey, you've come, and you're going to change the, the whole landscape because what you're bringing is going to push up against the racial divisions that exist in every country, every nationality. They exist all over the world. If you've only lived in the deep south, then it only has one particular flavor for you. 
But if you travel the world, you know it's not a southern problem, it's a human problem. And I, I like to tell the story of one of my first interviews I ever had in a church. I, I didn't have many. I've spent most of my life here. And so, but one of the questions they asked, I didn't know where it was going. I didn't understand why they asked it. So I gave them kind of a smart aleck answer, but I thought it was also true. And this was the question. Kevin, are you prejudiced? Yeah. Aren't we all? Was my answer. I was just like, how can I deny the reality of the dark, the darkened heart? I said, but hey, I know Jesus and he's changing me. He's changing me so I don't, my prejudices don't lead the way. He's changing me so I, I see the perspective of life differently. And praise God for it. Humans use race to divide, discriminate, subjugate, in other words, differentiate from one another. It's just what we do. And with Jesus, all that's changed. And it started with the great division of Jew and Gentile. And the implications are unbelievable. Ephesians chapter 2 explains it. Here's what it says. It'll be on the screen. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. This is the peace candle. How did he do it? He united Jew and Gentile into one people. When in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did it by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups together as one body. Christ reconciled both groups together. Um, excuse me. Both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility toward each other was put to death. That's reality. That's not aspirational. That is, that's it. We're to live in that. I have no hostility with you and you with me because Christ has put it to death. Now we have to live in that reality. Man. So before Jesus, race is a great divider. You see it played out all over the world. After Jesus, after Jesus, we're united no matter what our race is. I've had the privilege and opportunity to travel to many, many different countries and meet Christians from over 20 different countries. And you know what I find in meeting Christians from other places? I find an affinity that's stronger than even some of my relationships with my own family. It's unbelievable. So earlier I told you you would hear from Charles. My name is Charles, not me, who was baptized earlier today. I'm from India. I was born into a Christian family. I followed all the traditions of a Christian as a child. Back in high school, I had great teachers in Sunday school who not only opened my eyes to God's Word, but also walked the talk of their God-centric lifestyle. I did my undergrad. I got a job. I was leading a comfortable life, living with my parents. On the outside, I looked like the model Christian, but internally, I knew my life was about um, all I wanted rather than what God wanted for me. Then God led me to do my master's uh, here a couple years ago. And I had to leave most of my comforts. But this made me rely on God more. A couple of years ago, I listened to Pastor Kevin talk about the three stages of faith, knowing, accepting, and trusting God. I realized that for a long time, when I lived in India, I'd only been knowing and accepting but never trusted my life with God. After coming to the U.S., Listen to this. God placed me among amazing people in a great church to guide me in his word. 
I was plugged into a community group and D groups where I heard God's word and received godly love from my fellow believers. This inspired me to trust God more in all aspects of my life rather than just relying on myself and others. And as a result of that, I was bolder and less anxious about challenges in my life because of my increased faith in God. I delayed being baptized for a few reasons. I used to think I was too late. Other times I was just too scared to be on the stage. But God's word is clear. What Jesus did, he took the next step of baptism himself and he commanded us to be baptized as well. And that's how God gave me the boldness to take this step. I thank my wife for being supportive and understanding me while making this decision. Wow. Now here is the real amazing thing. Not only is he from India, quick pop quiz, how many people live in India? This is what I'm hearing. A billion plus. He moves to Baton Rouge. His next door neighbor is from his church at home and goes to this church. One in a billion. His next door neighbor here was in his church in India. It's a small, small world. Charles Brown. English is his first language. It's not his only language. He's from the completely other culture on a different part of the world. Our identity before Jesus is race. Our identity after Jesus is united no matter what the race. Skipping down to verse 36 of chapter 2, we meet Anna. There was also a prophet, a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Penel, and the tribe of Asher. She was very old, another oldie. She lived with her husband seven years after their marriage, and then he died. We'll get to that part in just a minute. I just want to stop and say, if you read Luke's gospel and you compare them to Matthew and Mark or John, what you will see is Luke's going to highlight women every chance he gets. Every chance he gets, he's going to say, notice this woman. Notice this woman. Notice her. Notice her. And he does it here. The two people that meet Jesus on this first outing to the temple, one's a man and one's a woman, and they're both significant. And it is not insignificant that Luke points that out and says, this is what happened. And so the observation here is that gender is often a dividing point. Women are much more likely to suffer physical abuse, spiritual abuse, sexual abuse, and sexual trafficking than men. And God says, how valuable are the women? They're as valuable as anyone because I died for them. And we can forget this. Sarah McLaughlin, who writes apologetically for the Christian faith, noted, as in every other ethical area, the church has underdelivered on its promise to women. Denigrating and patronizing attitudes have all too often infected the church culture, and selective readings of Scripture have enabled men to propagate misogynistic views. And for that, as a man, all I can say is I'm sorry. Because it was Mary who carried Jesus. It was Mary Magdalene who would be the first person to see the resurrected Christ. 
It'd be Anna, the prophetess at the temple, who would see him and, and know him. It would be Joanna at the, only the women were at the tomb during the resurrection. So radical the change that's available to Christians in Christ. Paul would say it this way in Galatians chapter 3. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, no racial division. There's neither slave nor free, no economic division. There's neither male or female, no gender division. You are all one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to his promise. It's very, very strong. Before Jesus, our identity could be based first and foremost in gender. After Jesus, there's equality no matter the gender. And this is huge. Consider God's use of women in the Old and New Testament. Miriam, Moses' sister, very important. Deborah, out of the book of Judges. Hannah, Ruth, Esther, and there are others, of course. Women redeemed, uh, the women of the Bible redeemed and are precious to God. So if you're here today and you're thinking, my identity is um, wrapped up in, in just the singular aspect of gender, God says, no, it's much, much more expansive than that. It's wrapped up in the redemption that I bring to you and the value that I bring to you. Verse 37, and when she was a, and then she was a widow. Remember, she lived with her husband seven years. She was married seven years. And then she was a widow until she was 84. That's a long time. That may be 60 years. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Another observation is that widows in this culture were extremely exposed to the elements of society, meaning they had no protection, and they were no longer under the roof of their father to protect and provide. They had no husband to protect and provide. That's just the structures of the day. Her worth, we realize, is she has high worth, but she was a widow, and so she has taken, uh, she has put herself in the temple. It's safer there. That's where she's spending all of her time. Here's the point. We're a culture that loves the rich and the wealthy, and we esteem them way, way high. And the more money you have and your income potential and the richest people in the world, they make the headline news, not the widowed and the old, and that's who Jesus is with. That's where they, they didn't roll out the red carpet and say, get all the dignitaries, get all the influential people. They had Simeon, who's singing to strangers about their child. And they have Anna, who's old and has been there all this time. This is, this is appropriate, right? And when we show favoritism, either internally or externally, to the wealthy, then we are diminishing the gospel. Here's how the Apostle James would put it. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring or that fancy watch I mentioned or fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes comes in and you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and you say, hey, here's a good seat for you. But you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And the answer is, yes, we have. Yes, we have. But the power of the gospel and the power of Christmas is that, here, here it is, identity before Christmas, socioeconomics is important. Identity 
after Christmas, we have worth no matter our status, no matter our earning potential. This means we view one another and the world around us extremely differently, with less prejudice, with less judgment, with more love. Consider the poor and the humble. Moses was raised as a prince in Pharaoh's home. He killed somebody. He went into, he went into hiding for 40 years. 40 years. Didn't have any money left. Didn't have any prestige left. And God says, now you're ready. You're just a shepherd. Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. Just trying to pay the bills. And God would use her to rescue people, and then she would be in the lineage of Jesus. David, again, he was just a shepherd boy. Wasn't trained. The disciples were fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, just everyday people. The widow who gave the money, and Jesus stopped everybody and said, hey, guys, watch this right here. This woman has nothing, and she's giving sacrificially. Matter of fact, she's giving all she has. This is radical generosity. This is it. It's not just giving out of surplus. It's giving sacrificially. Mary and Joseph, do you have enough money for a little lamb? No. Do you have enough money for some doves? No. Would you like some pigeons? Yes. We'd like to take some pigeons to the temple. Mm. Yeah. No matter how much you're worth or how little you're worth financially, your value and your status at Christmas because of what Jesus has done raises that to an extreme level. Verse 38, coming up to them, either Joseph and Mary and Jesus, or Simeon still has Jesus and won't let him go. I don't know who is in that moment. She gives thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. Israel needed to be redeemed because it was always oppressed. They were looking for a redeemer. The rest of the world was not. That's why it's a light to a Gentile. They didn't, they didn't know. I didn't know that I needed a redeemer until somebody helped me and loved me and showed me. But you don't need to be redeemed from something unless there's a problem. And the big problem in humanity is the problem of sin. That's the big problem. And Jesus has come as a baby, as an infant, as this tiny little a fragile human to be our, a sin sacrifice for us. So very literally, before Jesus, our identity can feel like we're sinful and separated. After Jesus, we can know love no matter what our sin is. We call it the gospel of grace here, that Jesus loves us too much to leave us where we are. He loves us too much to leave us there. He's going to move us. He's going to accept us as we are, but he's not going to leave us as we are. He's going to change us. Imagine, imagine a Christmas, because let me tell you, our world is screaming for the Christmas reality to be played out among the Christians of the church, where the divisions of age don't exist. So the youngest person that shows up in our church is taken seriously. An old young life quote, teenagers will migrate to the oldest person in the room who will take them seriously. It's not, I think it's still true. Preteens will too. You take people seriously. If you're, if you're older and, and the world has said, we're done, the church would say, you're, we have a place for you. 
please come and bring your, your gifts and your wisdoms here. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't it be awesome if race wasn't a division? The, the solution to the racial problems of today is often called just tolerance, but it breaks down because it's a human construct. And if I draw, if I draw a line, then I've made a stand, and, and now tolerance doesn't work, and most people can't live in the amorphous world of no, no rules. And that's where we're headed. But, but we have a solution about race that the world doesn't know of, and we failed at it as church, big C. But that doesn't mean we, we have to still fail at it. And what if, what if the men and women in, in church were, were valued and they, and they carried themselves with value? This is part of the Christian message played out about among the Christian people, but not on, Christian, on Christmas Day, but every day. The world is dying to see this. And I know what it is to love you and forgive you and receive you because I've been loved, I've been forgiven, I've been received. And Christ died for me. So I can, I can love you. This is what's available at Christmas. It's pretty awesome, in my opinion. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul and the soul knew its worth from the hymn, Christmas hymn, O Holy Night, which is what we'll sing in just a minute. I'd love for you to sing out and realize that the great, your value as a Christian is the price that was paid for you. And hear me on this. Please hear me on this. Please hear me on this. There is absolutely no, no buyer's remorse when it comes to you and what Christ has done for you. So if you feel like you're far from God, he's asking you to come near. Christian, if you've stumbled and fallen all year long and you think he has buyer's remorse for the redemption price he paid for me, he does not. He just desires for you to come home. And you know, the world has a million opinions about your worth. They type them up every day. And they put them on the screen of your life. Let me ask you to look at one. And that's what Jesus says that you're worth. You're worth everything he gave. Let that settle in. Because in it is peace and hope and love. Pray with me. Father God, thank you so very much for your son who came to redeem and to give his life a ransom for many. I pray for those here today that struggle because they feel too old or too young. Would you meet them right where they are and remind them of how you love to use those that seem too young, (laughs) that seem too old. Lord, I pray for those that feel marginalized either by us or by the culture at large because of their ethnicity. May we be the first, the church, to say we are one in Christ, brothers and sisters together. May that define our gatherings. 
Lord, I pray for those who feel like because their earning potential has gone down or is not up to their friends or their peers, and they don't feel worthy. I pray that they would see first what you've done for them, how you have loved both the poor and the rich. Lord, I pray that you would give them grace. And we thank you that you've come to pay the price of sin that allows us to worship with gladness. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.